Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. It is often said that history is written by the victors. However, the writers of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, take a very different approach. They tell all the failings and flaws of their leaders, especially of all those messiahs found between Saul and Jesus. You're listening to The Messiah is Dead by guest minister, Reverend Bob Arbogast. Good evening, LaGrave congregation. It's good to be with you again. It has been too long. Lord willing, it won't be so long before the next time. I'm going to be reading in just a moment a portion of 1 Samuel chapter 1. I wanted to call attention to something in verse 19 because I'm going to read it a little differently than what you'll see in the in the Pew Bibles, if you're looking there. Verse 19 in the Pew Bibles mentions a gazelle. And then it has a footnote that says, well, gazelle symbolizes a human dignitary. Well, older translations, I think, were a little better when they uh, translated this as your glory. Not a gazelle, but your glory, Israel, lies slain on the heights. And so that's how I'm going to read it. 2 Samuel 1, 17 through 27. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan. And he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. It is written in the book of Jashar. Your glory lies slain on the heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terraced fields, for there the shield of the mighty was despised. The shield of Saul, no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. This is the word of the Lord. For the, for the prisoner members of Celebration Fellowship Church, reading the Bible is a priority. So we had a wonderful time when we read through the New Testament together a couple of years ago. For 16 weeks, 
we read and talked about everything from the Gospel of Matthew to the book of Revelation. We walked with Jesus and we traveled with Paul and we had visions with John. It was a special time. Then we turn to the Old Testament. We spent another 16 weeks reading from Joshua to Kings. The book of Ruth was, was a bright spot. But all in all, it was not a wonderful time. So much violence and corruption and rebellion, all of it adding up to Israel's exile. We heaved a sigh of relief when those 16 weeks were over. But on the plus side, we did come to appreciate the remarkable candor of the Old Testament. Now think about that for a minute. Besides biblical Israel, is there any people anywhere that tell their own story with such honesty? The Old Testament is unflinching. It never disguises twisted actors, and it never hides their distorted actions. All the ugliness is laid bare page after page. There is no cover-up. Which is to say, the Old Testament is not Texas. Texas gained its independence from Mexico in 1836. These days, Texas law requires grade school teachers to, to tell that story as a brave fight for freedom. But that's not even a half-truth because the fight in Texas was mostly about preserving slavery, just like the Civil War. But that's not a story Texas wants to tell. It's no surprise, really. Every state or country, every business or school, every family or church sanitizes its own history. But with biblical Israel, things are different. The Old Testament is fearlessly honest about Israel's history, from its founding fathers to its kings. It's quite remarkable. Now, from a certain angle, the whole Bible appears to be about kingship. Think about it. The Bible begins with a story about human beings having dominion over the earth. It ends with a vision of God's throne at the center of the New Jerusalem. And in between, it's filled with stories about kings. Now, we just heard from 2 Samuel chapter 1. By that point in the story, Israel's first king, Saul, has been killed in battle. So Israel's second king, David, is taking steps to secure the throne for himself. As a first step, he raises a lament over Saul. 
The text of David's lament celebrates Saul, as it should. But at the same time, the fact of the lament burnishes David's reputation. With the transition in mind, and we know transitions can be difficult, with the transition in mind, the lament nearly shouts, the king is dead, long live the king. In other words, David is saying, Saul is gone, but I'm here. And why not? Why should David hold back? He's been waiting for this moment for years, ever since Samuel anointed him to be Israel's king when he was just a young man. While David waited all those years, Saul kept trying to kill him. But David never lifted a hand against Saul because Saul was the Lord's anointed. And after Saul dies, David continues to restrain himself. He doesn't celebrate Saul's death. He celebrates Saul, who had been anointed by the Lord to be Israel's king. Anointed by the Lord to be Israel's king. There's a Hebrew word for that. You might know it. Messiah. So in a word, Saul was Israel's Messiah. But now the Messiah is dead. And David leads Israel in a lament. With Saul in mind, he sings, Oh, Israel, your glory lies slain upon your heights. Oh, Israel, how the mighty have fallen. And don't forget, Saul was glorious. He was an impressive man. He was a giant even, standing a head taller than anyone else in Israel. And Saul was mighty. With his sword and with his shield, he had led Israel in battle and defeated many enemies. So David's lament celebrates the glory and strength of Saul. But that strength is no more. And the glory has faded away because Israel's king has fallen. And not only the king, but the king's son as well. With Jonathan's death, it's an open question who will take the throne next. To support his own claim, David includes Jonathan in his lament. He wants there to be no doubt about his devotion to Saul and about his love for Jonathan. As part of that love and devotion, David also takes care to guard Saul's honor, even in death. He says, Shh, keep it quiet. He says, don't let the Philistines know. Why? So those Philistines won't have a big party and trash talk Saul. 
David is not about to let the Philistines humiliate Saul in his death. The glory and honor of Israel's king must be guarded. But there's more to it than that. When both Saul and Jonathan die, it leaves a power vacuum in Israel. And it will take some time to fill the gap. So for as long as possible, the Philistines need to be kept in the dark. Otherwise, they could strike while Israel's leadership is in disarray. David needs to buy some time so he can at least begin to consolidate his own authority. In effect, the lament says, the Messiah is dead, but keep that quiet until we have a new Messiah anointed by the Lord to be Israel's king. But that won't happen overnight. Yes, David has already been anointed, but he's not king yet. First, he has to go to Judah, to his own tribe. There, he will be anointed publicly to be Judah's king. But that's only a stopgap, just a stopgap, because a time of war will follow, pitting David's family and allies against the family and allies of Saul. And that fight will last for seven and a half years. Then, at last, David will be anointed once more this time to be king over all Israel. Only then will the people be able to say, the Messiah is dead. Long live the Messiah. David will then reign over all Israel for 33 years. There will be some bright spots during that time. But like Saul, David too will fail and fall and fade away. And that pattern will repeat until the exile. There will be Messiah after Messiah, each one of them anointed to be Israel's king, each one of them failing and falling and fading away until the fade out is complete and once again there is no king in Israel. But after a long time hope will start to grow. Hope for a new king. A king from David's line, to be sure, but this time an idealized version of David. Someone who is truly a man after God's own heart. Someone who will not fail or fall or fade away. Someone who will reign forever. As the Old Testament closes, that hope remains unrealized. Israel has no king, no Messiah. Then we open the New Testament and hope leaps from the page in the first line of the first gospel we hear about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. 
So the New Testament, like all the Bible, is a story about kingship. The kingship of Jesus. At his baptism, Jesus is anointed by the Spirit, anointed to be the king of the Jews. And like his ancestor David, he goes out to the wilderness and he faces off against the giant who is terrorizing the people of God. Not Goliath and not Rome, but the devil, the embodiment of sin and evil and death. From that encounter... Jesus journeys slowly and steadily toward his throne. On the way, he is dogged by enemies who try to undermine him, who try to haul him away, who try to kill him. In the end, those enemies claim their prize and nail him to a cross. He hangs there, stripped naked and brutalized, shamed in the eyes of all who see him. Mockery comes from every direction, from those who pass by, from those sentenced to die with him, and from the sign above his head. It says, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The point of the sign is clear. Jesus is a king without power. Jesus is a king who has been crushed by Rome. By day's end, his life is over. Jesus, the Messiah, is dead. A spear thrust confirms it. And his lifeless body is laid in a tomb. There is a fearless honesty to the New Testament. It makes no attempt to disguise the powerlessness and disgrace of Jesus. All the ugliness is there. There is no cover-up. When Saul died, David led Israel in lament. But when Jesus dies, there is no public lament. No one says, oh, Israel, your glory lies slain on the heights of Golgotha. No, he's just another failed and fallen Messiah. And like all the others, he will fade away. His memory will perish with his flesh. So he is best forgotten. To speak of him and to speak of his death will only add shame to shame. So, shh, keep it quiet. Don't remind the Romans to humiliate Israel. But some years later, the Holy Spirit launches Paul the Apostle on his apostolic mission. And wherever he goes, he only talks about Jesus, the crucified Messiah. Now, how strange that the apostle would focus on what Jews consider a stumbling block, on what Gentiles 
consider foolishness. How strange that he would make no pretense of shielding Jesus from insult and shame. How strange that he would place at the center of his mission, at the center of his identity, and at the center of his hope, a fallen Messiah. Oh, but I left out part of the story, didn't I? The, the key part of the story, actually. Now, after Golgotha, anyone who cared might have said, the Messiah is dead. But two days later, those same people would have been able to say, long live the Messiah. Not because there was a new Messiah, a new king, to take the fallen king's place, but because the fallen king had been raised from death. The crucified Messiah had not faded away and never would fade away. This Messiah would live forever and his kingdom would never end. So there is no shame in the cross, not in the end. Because the cross reveals what a true king looks like. There is no shame in the cross. Because the cross demonstrates the powerlessness of swords and shields and all the tools of empire. There is no shame in the cross. Because the cross demonstrates the futility of the last enemy, death. An enemy overcome by the power of resurrection. No wonder, no wonder reading the New Testament was a time of joy for us in the prison church a couple years ago. The New Testament announces clearly and without apology that the Messiah is dead. It's no secret. In fact, the Messiah's death is at the center of the good news because genuine history doesn't need to cover up what's ugly. We can face the truth without fear. But the truth doesn't end, and history doesn't end, with a dead Messiah on Friday. Sunday comes along, and the Messiah lives. Not the next Messiah, but the same Messiah. The one and only, once and forever, Messiah. Jesus. He is the one who was slain. He is the one who lives again. He is the one who reigns as king over all creation forever and ever. Now, we all know there are a lot of controversies about history these days. Controversies about what really happened and why. Controversies about how to teach history. Controversies about how to reckon with history. And controversies about how to take responsibility for history. Well, in the church, we are in favor of honesty. We believe in telling the truth and owning up to it. We believe in making amends for the sins of the past, and we believe in dismantling any setup that perpetuates injustice and the miseries that go with it. 
It's part of our anointing. In the church, we can handle the truth. In the church, we can face the truth fearlessly because we live by the spirit of truth. And because we have an undying hope in King Jesus and the kingdom of God. Glory and thanks be to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Jesus, King Jesus, we adore you and we exalt you. You show us what a real king looks like. And you show us what the pathway of, of your anointing is all about. Lord Jesus, may we keep you always in front of our eyes. And may the vision of you guide us as we seek to live out our anointing faithfully, following in your steps, the ever-faithful Messiah and King. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.